Welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jenna Valente, and this is a show dedicated to telling the story of coastal advocacy and shining a light on people that are being kind to the planet. Each episode, you'll meet a person or group of people that are driven to leave this watery world in a better place than they found it. Today, I'm joined by Lindsay Hurt, who really is um, the jack of all conservation trades, or um, another way to put it is is a modern day conservation renaissance woman. Um, Some of her roles include, she's a marine biologist for um, Captain John, uh, is it Captain John Smith or Captain John Boats? Captain John Boats. Captain John Boats um, and Sea Salt Charters. And she's also an environmental educator. Um, And I asked Lindsay to come on the show today to demonstrate just how many different ways you can approach ocean advocacy and conservation work. Um, Lindsay works so hard to not only continue educating herself about the natural world, but also to share that knowledge with others. So Lindsay, thank you for spending some time with me today. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. So before we carry on with the rest of the episode, we need to get some business out of the way and pause for a brief word from our sponsors. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Dune Doctors, a excellent, outstanding hub vendor, Dune Restoration Company out of Pensacola, Florida, led by the brilliant Frederic Barosette's superb work from permitting design through construction on shoreline projects. If you're in the business of managing property on the Gulf of Mexico or up the Atlantic seaboard, Dune Doctors is a great company to reach out to. Find Frederic and her team at dunedoctors.com. Dunedoctors.com. TI Coastal Services in Wilmington, North Carolina, one of the great boutique-focused engineering companies that has very successfully implemented shoreline strategies up and down the eastern seaboard. Smart, cost-conscious, great company, TI Coastal Services. You can find them at ticoastal.com. And we are back with Lindsay Hart. And let's dive a little bit deeper, Lindsay, into your advocacy story. Um, We're going to start by getting to know who you, Lindsay, the human being is before we dive deeper into your work, because I think it's really important to highlight all of the different paths that people can take um, during their lives uh, to end up in the ocean advocacy and conservation space. I I think sometimes it can be really helpful for people to hear um, just, you know, what the steps are that that you took to get to where you are today. Um, So could you please share with us a little bit about where you're from and what your path looked like to get to where you are now? Absolutely. Well, it looks a lot more like a spaghetti plate than stepwise <laughs> a journey to get to where I'm going. And honestly, I'm 33 years old and I'm not even there yet. In fact, I don't even have a good elevator speech for you to tell you what I really am. I can just say that I'm a marine biologist who loves the ocean and works as an independent contractor. Um, I'm most well-versed on the wildlife and conservation issues coastal issues and marine issues of New England waters, especially Massachusetts Bay, Cape Cod Bay, and the sanctuary here known as Stellwagen Bank. And that's mostly because my whole life is connected to the sea. 
I grew up in historical downtown Plymouth, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, some people have heard of it because of the pilgrims in 1620 uh, and where the first Thanksgiving originated from. But uh, more than that, this is where even the earliest year settlers and the natives before them, the Wampanoags, lived off the natural resources that are so bountiful here from the estuaries to the rivers and the alewife or herring uh, to the shellfish and even the whales, which at one time were hunted almost to extinction. So I, I actually would... I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm sorry for interrupting, but I okay. before we got too far away from the Plymouth, Massachusetts and... Mm-hmm. Um, Plymouth Rock. I know that a couple weeks ago we we were in Plymouth and um, I looked to you as our resident expert on the history of it. And I know a lot of our listeners probably um, were just or are just as unaware as I was and many of the people that we were with um, about Plymouth Rock, um, because I'm not sure if anyone listening has been to Plymouth or seen the rock, um, but it's in this giant, um, beautifully constructed enclosure and you kind of walk up to it and you look down and, and, um, you know, not to offend the rock or anyone or the history of it. Um, it's a, it's a rock and it's kind of underwhelming. Um, so I know that you know a little bit more of the history of it. Um, Is that the original rock that um, the pilgrims landed on? Well, it's a rock. (laughs) It's a glacial (laughs) erratic rock that is uh, there thanks to the efforts of uh, melting glacial ice that left behind the bodies of water and the uh, geographical area we know as Cape Cod, it looks kind of like an arm flexing its bicep, and it's a really sandy environment, so there's not a lot of big rocks like that. So that in itself, it's kind of iconic for um, the South Shore of Massachusetts, uh, for coastal living, for fishing and boating and weather. But this rock has become like a cornerstone of American history, being that there's not that many large rocks here, and the thought is that the pilgrims first stepped onto this rock to get to shore. Um, in all reality, the likelihood is, is no, that they um, put their ship, the Mayflower, out. Uh, they moored it out in uh, the bay where it was a little bit deeper and rode to shore in this little rowing vessel called a shallop and just pushed ashore onto the sand. Uh, but because it was there, it became this this standalone icon for uh, starting life in a new world. And we believe, at least most people believe, that it's used as kind of a way to gather people around patriotism and the story of the pilgrims and how they had to uh, fight for a new life and religious freedom in the new world, in the new Americas. And, uh, And as a result of that, it's kind of like the... It's very, it's symbolic. Yes. Yeah. It's not the rock itself. It's the message behind it. (laughs) It's the message behind it. I mean, honestly, I think there's a lot more legend to it than history. Um, But yeah, especially if you go out to Provincetown and talk to them out there, which um, for those of you that are not familiar with Massachusetts geography, uh, Provincetown is 
at the very end of Cape Cod. So if you think about uh, what Lindsay was talking about with how Cape Cod looks like an arm flexing, if you were to go all the way down to the end of the fist, um, that is where Provincetown is. And I mean, if you look at a map, it does make sense um, that maybe they would hit that spit of land first. Um, but there's a kind of a long historical spirited debate over where these ships actually made landfall first. <laughs> right. And it's a comical one. I mean, there's even a beach out there known as First Encounter Beach where it's thought that the, the pilgrims landed first. Um, and that's, that's what history tells us. But in truth, the pilgrims actually were looking to go way south of here and just got blown off course. They mildly misnavigated, which is an easy thing to do in a vessel that can only go about two miles an hour in the 1600s and is at the mercy of the weather. Um, so they ended up at Provincetown, which is basically like the world's end. It juts out as a sandy peninsula into the Atlantic Ocean. And there just weren't enough natural resources there. And so after a month of no success, they moseyed on down through the uh, Cape Cod Bay, that it's known as now, onto the shores of Plymouth, where they found an estuary and some more timber to build their homes and churches, and ultimately uh, made a relationship with the natives here the Wampanoags and after that time that's when the rock kind of became that icon that we know and love today and since then it's had many adventures it's been moved it has been revered it has had little chips broken off of it which are sold on eBay as historical masterpieces and right now it's only about a third of the size as it once was and it's protected by that portico in downtown Plymouth where you can go and see it and listen to the story and also sometimes feel a little bit disappointed that it's not more spectacular <laughs> but it does have a great story around it so the moral sure. of that story is managing expectations um, yeah. <laughs> a little bit and then also I think that you know both both Plymouth and Provincetown and so many of those small coastal New England towns are just steeped in history whether it's um, native peoples or pilgrims or revolutionary war days. And then you fast forward even to, um, you know, the deep rooted maritime culture that all of these areas have. Um, so my suggestion would be for anyone, if you're in this region or visiting this region to take a quick trip out, um, it really is beautiful, um, in any of those towns, any time of year. Um, but if you tend to enjoy warmer weather, then the summertime is, is a great time to come and check out, um, Plymouth and Provincetown and rest of Cape Cod and the South shore. Um, so it is a unique environment. Yes, absolutely. I mean, ruled by fishing and boating that runs the recreation, the ecotourism, the economy, even the decor of the home. I mean, most people in America, they've heard of a Cape Cod cottage and what it looks like. And because this area was shaped uh, by, by glacier and is known as a dynamic environment, I mean, the one thing about Cape Cod and Plymouth and the South Shore of Massachusetts that you can say that never changes is that it's always changing. And that's something that's really unique about it because you can actually see those changes from season to season and year to year. Yeah, sure. it's almost like a completely different place depending on when, when you visit. Right. Um, so I know that you grew up in Plymouth and, mm -hmm. um, you have such an incredible knowledge of that area. And 
I would love to hear you elaborate a little bit more on your personal connection um, to the ocean and conservation. I would imagine that a lot of it probably stemmed from um, your roots down along the South Shore in Plymouth, um, but then also get into a little bit more of your background and your education um, and what what led you ultimately to choose a career in um, ocean conservation, ocean education, and advocacy? Well, there's a lot of connections. I don't know if I could even stick to just one, uh, but Plymouth itself, aside from its historical content, is really known for its whale watching. Uh, And as a child, I preferred boat trips whenever possible to the playground. So at a very early age, I was connecting uh, with the water, the sand between my toes, and the whales right off our coast, which sometimes we even see from the beaches. I was going on whale watches, and uh, even later, after I graduated college, I began working on the very same uh, whale-watching company whose uh, fleet that I first rode on, and that was Captain John. Um, There's a lot of encounters with wildlife here, and I think... A lot of them are not well-known compared to some of the big, sexy, unique world wildlife-type icons that you see when it comes to saving the planet. Like, you know, you think of panda bears and tigers and lions and giraffes and and bottlenose dolphins. And yes, we have dolphins here, but they're cold water dolphins. And a lot of people have never heard of them. Like the Atlantic white-sided dolphin that has this big white swoosh on the side of its body. It looks like a Nike stripe. They're striking animals. I'm also really happy that you used better terminology than I think so many people in our our space will use charismatic megafauna to describe animals when they can just simply say those cute fuzzy animals that you see when uh, conservation groups are trying to get money from you or play at your heartstrings like pandas and elephants and tigers. Um, You know, I I think sometimes we can fall into that. Um, I hear that phrase all the time, the charismatic, Absolutely. Yeah, charismatic megafauna. And it's like, just say cute or the animals that are like in vogue right it's, now. It's overused for sure. It's true. It is fun they to say though. I mean, humpback whales, for example, which use this area as a feeding ground, this Cape Cod to, to Maine stretch of water that we know is the Gulf of Maine. They use it for feeding grounds and they are certainly visible. Um, either from shore or or close to shore within a few nautical miles on a boat, you can go and see them. Um, But there is so much more than that. My earliest recollections are walking on Cape Cod and Plymouth beaches with my mom to collect salty treasures like channeled whelks and mermaid's purses and surf clams after the storm and even the the much-revered whole sand dollar, which most of the time you find those only in little fragments, and it was such a treasure to find a whole one. You know, oh, even absolutely. As small as your thumbnail, that brings they're back. Beautiful, they are so beautiful. You don't think of them in terms of conservation. It's yeah. only if you, if you know them locally. Usually. Yeah. So um, do you, I have to ask because you are out on the water so frequently um, and from the time you were a kid all the way up until now, do you have a favorite creature or critter that lives off of the coast? I, I was going to say coast of New England, but... Um, I could open that up to the entire ocean. Um, and it almost might be like choosing a favorite child. That's, I don't, I don't have kids, but I always hear that that is a very difficult thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm asked that all the time. I'm asked that, um, 
often when I do lecture to colleges or provide programs to to you know elementary classrooms or, or when I'm on the boat just talking about what we're seeing people say what is your favorite and uh, I think if I had a favorite I would really be doing a disservice to the ocean to to the field overall because it, it, there is no one favorite <laughs> and if you overfocus on one part you forget about that slice of the pie that that little role that that one organism or that one animal plays to the whole thing of course for me whales and larger creatures are sort of my specialty because I spend so much time with them and I really really like the humpback whale because they're so um, oh, there's so many ways to describe them they're so relatable in terms of I know this is a silly thing to say but their niceness their altruism um, there have been many encounters where they have protected other animals outside of their own species including humans uh, away from from danger and they're so graceful and 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 sleek looking despite their size which can you know top out at 30 40 tons I mean they're large animals and you can still relate to them on the water you can you can look them in the eye when they approach your boat and try to connect with them and guess what they're thinking so that's a really cool animal I don't know if I can call them my favorite I love sea turtles I love all those little things that you can pick up on the beach that that tell a story like like our shells that have this beautiful pattern you know, it's, it's hard to say. I wish I could give you an answer, but I just can't. <laughs> I think that was a great answer. And I think, you know, what I was hearing is, and I agree with this and I feel this way too, is that you really love the interconnectedness of everything. You know, it's a yes. big, the it's a big it, family out there the and yeah. they all rely on each other and they all rely on us to take care of each other and, and feed each other and um, keep that whole ecosystem and web healthy. Um, and I also feel like, uh, this is thinking back to my days when I worked for fish and wildlife service many, many years ago down in Virginia. Um, you know, if you observe an animal for long enough and learn enough about them, you are bound to fall in love with it. And you just realize how fascinating every single living thing on this planet is. Um, It just might take a little time to dedicate to learning about it. Um, And then when you were talking about the humpback whales, one of my favorite memories from college that really resonates with me is I had a professor at University of Maine, that was where I completed my undergraduate work, um, named Nathan Stormer. And it was a communications class he was trying to demonstrate um, the many different ways that you can communicate with others. And he started the class off by playing this whale song from Humpback Whales. And, you know, everybody's kind of looking around at each other like, you know, what's going on? Um, I know we're going to school in Maine, so it's not that surprising um, that we have this really hippie sort of way to start a class, but, (laughs) (laughs) but then he played another whale song after that. And he was, he stopped and he was like, the reason why I did that is because, um, when you look at whale songs, you know, those, 
are so unique to the each pod. And what we had just heard was this one pod had, um, for some reason, sent one of their whales. It swam all the way across the ocean, found this other pod, learned their song, brought it back, and then taught their whole... Um, its whole native pod, that other group's whale song. And they all adopted it and started singing it. And um, so we sort of spent some time analyzing, you know, why, what was the reason behind that? Um, but I, I, I think it just speaks to how fascinating whales are in general, but especially humpback whales, um, for them to, to do something like that and continually be learning about each other and communicating with each other. And evolving. Yes, and evolving. That's that's how we can humanize them to us, or anthropomorphize them. It's actually happening long before it ever happened with humans. Every species, in response to its environment and to what its needs are and what its risks and concerns and survival issues are, they need to evolve. And for sure, uh, whales, humpbacks included, have their own social network. They need to communicate somehow. They need to do it to to navigate. They need to do it to forage or find food. They need to do it to mate. They need to do it to talk to their kiddos and and see what they're doing and keep them safe. You know, they're they're calves. And so they have to develop a language like that. And we know precious little about it. I see that there is a lot of really great science happening right now to try to understand a little bit more about the culture of whales. Um, many organizations are, are studying the sounds of, of pods of orcas or associations of humpback whales. And it's hard to give an answer because that song is always changing. But since the 1970s, when Roger Payne and his wonderful wife started looking at how uh, whales were producing song and how that changed from year to year, we've evolved so much in just what we know about that. And we still know just a tiny little slice of what there is to know. And it seems that all along the world, even if some of these species like the humpbacks, which are circumglobal, depending on where they're native to, if I can use that word, to what, where the specific populations are, they all kind of have their own language mm-hmm. in how they talk to each other. And the sounds they produce are different. And I know for, for the humpback whales, the mating song that they, that they have uh, in particular, it, it sounds a lot very similar with each individual in a single year. But as you go on from year to year, a new hit comes out. It's almost like genres develop, <laughs> it's, develop over time. It's like... Um... <laughs> a better way to explain yeah, it than that. And certainly there's a more scientific way. It's like the um, song of the summer every year. Like what is yes, the, what are the top absolutely. 40 pop hits? What are the top, <laughs> the top 40 whale songs? Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I know I just met you. Uh, can you call me? <laughs> That's every, every day a little bit different. And, and it does that says how or why that happens, uh, yet that we know. And maybe we'll know, but that's part of the mystery of being able to to listen to them. You know, it's, it's pretty cool. They have their own language, and we know, we see what we see, but we know so little about it. We wouldn't even know that they existed uh, until very recently if we didn't have to breathe 
they don't spend a lot of time at the surface, all things considered, but they have to come up here because they have us at a lot of this. We get the opportunity to see them just long enough to get a little taste of what they're about. Absolutely. I'm going to stop you for like one second because I'm not sure if you're in a bad service zone and I can hear you for the most part, but... There were a couple moments where you broke up, so I just want to... Okay, I'll move. Yeah. Um, just hopefully so that clears up moving forward. So is everybody can hear... Yes, that is better. Okay. okay. <laughs> so just let me know. Yeah, of course. Um, so I know that we, we haven't even gotten to um, your education yet and what your career path has looked like so far. So I, w- I would love um, for you to share a little bit about that with our listeners. Sure. Absolutely. Again, it's a spaghetti plate. No one perfect path, but uh, having grown up in this area, I spent a lot of time reading, watching, paying attention to all things ocean. Of course, the whales were an overwhelming sense of of passion for me but just spending time in nature and with people who enjoy or study the ocean helps to kind of elevate my understanding and my appreciation and that's been building forever i i have spent from a very early age much of my time connecting with or volunteering for environmental and animal organizations animal conservation organizations whose mission i believe in and i always continue to support and nurture those relationships um, just like with the Healthy Oceans Coalition. Um, <laughs> on uh, Cape Cod, we've got a plethora of organizations and, and superstars in conservation science to choose from. Uh, the, the Center of Coastal Studies has done been doing groundbreaking work for, for decades on everything from uh, humpback whale ecology to uh, rescue efforts to general coastal education for the locals and they are a great um, group to hear from and work with Um, the New England Aquarium is in Boston and they have an amazing uh, science center and an incredible research efforts that are continually putting out feelers and collaborating with with people worldwide not to mention their unbelievable aquarium itself which is just great to go to Um, and you know just being in the area where a lot of people are connected to uh, fishing and ocean recreation and spending time in the parks that all had a very heavy toll on me becoming an ocean nerd from very very early (laughs) I I did my undergraduate work also in a university of Maine school I was in Machias which most people have never heard of (laughs) it's a very small place there's like one stoplight in the whole town but what it has there that, that other places didn't is that it's the most eastern school in the United States, and it's very, very coastal as a result. Uh, it's really iconic for that. It's a great field school. And so I found that on my third day of school, I was somehow standing on top of a carcass of a dead minke whale that had washed <laughs> ashore, and that was pretty much how I got introduced to uh, science in college. <laughs> it, it built a really good foundation in the marine world and because I spent so much time with hands-on stuff um, seeing and touching and sometimes unfortunately smelling things in the lab or in the in the field um, yeah, down those the are school. some of the yeah. most pungent <laughs> real. yeah some of the most pungent smells I have ever experienced have been during necropsies of um, marine life and especially uh, yes. the one that really comes to mind is a sea turtle 
that we did um, while I was working at Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge. And it had been sitting out in the sun for quite some time. Um, it almost seemed like that smell sort of stuck inside of your nostrils <laughs> for a little while. Um, but thinking back to that moment, I, this, of course, the smell was terrible, but it was such a fascinating life moment to be able to go in and, and try to figure out, you know, what happened and what led to that turtle's demise. It's so valuable, right? Mm-hmm. To, to have that information. And, and a lot of times you don't learn exactly what happened, but you develop clues. And so just as it is important to observe nature in its most natural setting, you know, with the, for example, the wild whales and turtles, you know, on the water and watching them do their thing without disturbing them. That's very important to collect whatever data you can there and whatever behavioral stuff is going on and maybe health assessments and and individual identities or whatnot. But when these things wash ashore, that is our real space to be able to do a detailed, uh, well, necropsy or autopsy, like animal autopsy, and, and to collect more hands-on information, like get a biotoxin report, um, find out uh, what the individual muscle fibers look like, or if there's a hematoma from some trauma, or um, if there's excessive bubbles in the lungs that, that show that the animal had an infection or maybe uh, drowned as opposed to, to died of, an, of a natural cause. You know, and that kind of information is so valuable to help put the little puzzle pieces together that will help us better ourselves and the populations you know they're great sentinels for whatever else is helping helping or happening in the ocean rather Um, so as stinky as it is it's a very good cause (laughs) to be able to spend time (laughs) with a sea turtle or a dead whale or whatever is dead on the beach it tells a story and um while we're on the topic of machias maine um for Uh any of you travel lovers out there um so also I, I I feel like every episode listeners are getting to know me a little bit better too because this is so new. Um so I spent a lot of time growing up in Maine. So I love to throw out fun facts about the state whenever I can um because I think everybody should go visit at some point. It's such a beautiful place. Um and so Machias is not too far from and your comment on the school being the easternmost school in the continental US um uh-huh. uh made me think about just a really cool place for people to go visit, which I actually was able to finally go visit um, a couple summers ago, um, is up in Lubeck, Maine. There's West Quaddy Head. It's it's the easternmost point in the continental United States. It is so beautiful. You can see the Bay of Fundy there. There's all of these amazing hiking trails. Um, I had to go through Machias to get there, so you can stop into Helen's pies and get some amazing pies in Machias and then, and then <laughs> con- loves Helen. yes and then continue your journey and actually it was pretty amazing because when I stopped into Helen's I, uh, me and my brother and our group of friends were eating our pies and we looked up and Senator Angus King was right there in, in the pie shop with us and he stopped over and, and chatted with us for about 15-20 minutes and we were all kind of in awe about um, that whole experience of being in this little pie shop in Maine and 
meeting a senator, I guess it seemed kind of fitting for where you would envision meeting a, a senator from Maine. Absolutely. <laughs> large as it is, large as that beautiful, incredible state is, it is a small world, it's a small population. <laughs> really? And things like beaches and boating and pie definitely bring people together there. Yeah, definitely. And then because we're talking about debated areas like the Plymouth province town debate, um, so a lot of people will go to West Quaddy Head to see, be the first people to see the sunrise in the continental United States. Um, there's a big New Year's thing when you're event, you know, when you're thinking about, um, being the first people to welcome in the new year, but then, um, others will debate, which I think they are technically correct. If you go to the top of Cadillac mountain, um, in Acadia national park, because of the elevation, you technically can see the sunrise before people in West Quaddy Head. But I will put in a plug for everybody to go visit both of those places because they are two of my favorite spots in the entire world, and they are just overwhelmingly beautiful. And you will probably see all kinds of marine life and get to appreciate that rigid, rocky, uh, just stunning Maine coast. And the incredible tidal change... The tidal flux is so awesome. Yeah, it's almost shocking, (laughs) you know, yeah, just to see the water come and go like that is something that um, I really enjoy bringing people to Maine, especially northern Maine, when you get closer to the Bay of Fundy, um, who aren't necessarily from areas that have tidal changes like that. And just watching their reaction to see, like, where did the water go? <laughs> Pretty awesome. It's yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, so now I want to pivot a little bit and and start talking about your work. And I know that you do so many different things and wear so many different hats. So I don't know um, really where to start, um, other than sort of asking you, what does your day to day look like? Um, I know it's always changing. So I would I would appreciate getting some insight from you. Um, about what you're currently up to and any projects that you might be working on in the future. Sure. Um, Again, I don't know where to start. (laughs) Um, Well, I used to do uh, more environmental awareness and spend time pretty much solely on on whale watch boats and doing ecotourism and things like that right after college. But Uh, Once I earned my master's in emergency management at Massachusetts Maritime Academy to better understand the plight of the environment and how we can shape a better response to increasingly emergent situations like um, marine wildlife strandings and acute or chronic natural resource disasters related to human impact or weather events, Um, think oil spill, forest fire, warming oceans whale deaths related to increased boat traffic or, you know, fishing gear in the water. Um, I started to think a little bit more uh, broadly, and I also had developed some more skills to be able to interact with people and sort of do some of that risk communication and uh, response. So things changed a little bit from there. Uh, I kind of morphed from naturalist educator to an independent contractor who does not go to the same office every day and no day is the same. Like a journalist, I have to shape my own work and go where the needs are. So I basically work by assignment, season, and situation. 
so uh, since my day differs uh, with whatever the assignment is, at times that can mean combining research science, veterinary medicine, response work, and republic, you know, public relations all in a day. Um, some of the things that I spend time with now, of course, in addition to working as a naturalist for whale watch companies, which is primarily in the summer months here, I work with scientists at nonprofit organizations to survey marine life uh, for whatever their needs or scientific missions are, and to develop awareness campaigns and promote ocean advocacy uh, for what the work that they're doing. I work with schools and private organizations to develop content for educational programs, and that can range anywhere from sustainable oceans work to very specific looks at um, at problems like entanglements in humpback whales. And sometimes I get to speak at events and, and student assemblies. Uh, recently, I was at uh, Eastern Nazarene College um, with a marine biology class uh, looking to develop some skills for career day with them. Um, occasionally, I participate in rehabilitation and rescue efforts for wildlife here in this area because I know the locale and its wild inhabitants well. I volunteer under a permit as a trained first responder to animals in distress or stranded dead marine life, kind of like that turtle that you were talking about, <laughs> um, under the permit of a couple of really amazing organizations like uh, New England Aquarium and the International Fund for Animal Welfare, whose headquarters is based in Yarmouth Port, Mass. That work is on call and can relate to accident or disease or weather events like hurricane and coastal flooding. So it's, it's a hard response. And I, again, I don't have that elevator speech, but typically the summer is for the commercial whale watches and collecting field data. Uh, fall is for educational development, conferences, providing talks and implementing programming to schools. Uh, winter is usually for planning the next field season's work. You have to be ready to know what you're going to do and what the plan is and have the equipment ready uh, and creating educational materials for programs. And spring is usually for wildlife surveys when we have an influx of animals you know, at their migratory change. Uh, much of the wildlife response work happens here too when we see um, some severe changes in weather and, and temperature. Uh, so really, it really depends on the day. I have never been able to give anybody a day in the life of Lindsay <laughs> <laughs> that is actually accurate. Yeah. And many times that I, that I go, go to quote work wherever that is that day and thinking that I'm going to do one thing and then the day changes because of a call that comes in or because a need has changed. And I think and, what's uh, important. Oh, go ahead. Uh, yes. <laughs> I think what's important about that is that you don't necessarily need to have an elevator pitch down um, because there are people out there that might be listening to this that are interested in doing conservation work or working with wildlife um, or in education, but don't necessarily want that classic nine to five job situation. Yes. Um, yes. and you are I living, don't want it. yeah, exactly. And you're living proof that you can make that work. You can make that lifestyle work. If you want to be doing something different every single day, then you can, you can find a career in that. Um, 
And so I think that that is uh, really important to take away from this conversation is that, um, you know, some people thrive under that more structured environment and being able to have their elevator pitch and have that rigid schedule. And then there are other people out there um, that are always looking to do something different and get their hands in as many projects as possible and, you know, spread your knowledge and your skills and your talents around. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. Yeah, I, I think it's in this day and age more than ever, you need to be able to take curveballs well. And boy, I've never heard of another way to practice it than to not know what you're going to be doing next. Um, <laughs> there is, there's a lot of situations that you need that skill. And in this kind of work where things change and you have to depend on your personality and your ability to network and your ability to start a conversation, uh, get involved or get people excited about what you're doing, uh, really helps with some of those skills. And, and they, they're certainly developed over time. I mean, I remember the time when my throat, you know, clenched closed and my felt, my heart was, you know, in my throat and I had my stomach in knots, but when you practice or you get exposed to stuff like that and it's something that you're really interested in, like something as fascinating as all that we don't know about the ocean that begins to come easier over time. And nobody should feel afraid to be able to be a part of that because there is room. There is room to spend time on it because it's, and the ocean makes up 71% or more of our planet and it's becoming increasingly obvious that we need to do something about it. And so the more people who are on board with that, certainly the better. Absolutely. And think about, I mean, going back to what we were talking about earlier in this conversation with how much there is to still know and still research and learn about even just humpback whales. And then you expand that to whales in general and then marine life and the ocean as an ecosystem. There is so much information out there that we do not yet know um, that there, of course, is room for people to enter this space. And we we need passionate uh minds that are dedicated to conservation and, you know, have this thirst for knowledge to come in into this field. Um, and then also I was talking about this in the last episode. Um, we had Jen Long on with the whale guitar, which is based out of Providence. And she's also a healthy oceans coalition member. Um, and Lindsay, you actually, you know her because she was at, yes. um, uh, yes, healthy I, oceans I, I coalition event. Yeah, she is great. Um, and we were talking about where growth can come from and it can really stem from doing things that scare you a little bit and you're pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. Um, you know, like public speaking or, um, taking a risk with putting yourself out there in some way, shape or form with your career. So there's a, there's a lot to be said and a lot to gain from those moments. Um, like you were saying where, you know, the first couple of times you did it, you you felt like your throat was closing up and your heart's beating really fast. You know, you're kind of sweating and, um, you know, thinking internally, like freaking out, like, does everybody know that I'm freaking out right now? Um, but it gets easier. Honestly, who cares if they do know? <laughs> yeah. Because... They're all human too and they know what it feels like. Yeah, everybody's <laughs> had that. And, and if you know that you care about something and you want to be involved, well, the more time that you spend with it, the more that you'll ultimately become an expert. And the real fact of the matter is people only listen to you if they know that you're excited about something 
And, and that's more important than knowing every single thing about it. You know, caring about something, being compassionate about it is, is way more important than having every detail. I mean, I know that I could go to my computer right now and look up all kinds of studies and, and tell you more about humpback whales that I don't, you know, currently have in my own personal file bank. I, I know a lot about what's happening in the waters right here around me, still, still not even very much. But if you asked me to talk to you about uh, tropical ecosystems, Sure, I'm a marine biologist. Sure, I know some stuff, but I could barely differentiate one species of fish from another in a tropical environment. That's not my deal. But I love them. They're beautiful fish. I would love to talk with yeah. them. And the thing is, is that you probably know people who it is their deal. So if, right, if right. you have someone There's who's curious about learning more about mm-hmm. what kind of fish they're looking at, you can point them in the right direction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when I think the something that I really admire about you and, um, you know, many other people in this field is that you have this deep sense of stewardship and passion within you that drives you to do this work. Um, and I feel like I can include myself in that group of people. Um, and I would, I would just like to know a little bit more about what does being a conservation advocate mean to you? And to give you an example, um, I can speak from my own personal uh, journey to where I am now in my career. Um, I learned immediately after college when I started dipping my toe in the workforce and trying to figure out what I wanted to do that I needed to do something that I was passionate about and that gave me purpose. And, um, so I would say that, you know, being an advocate for the ocean and advocate for conservation means everything to me. I mean, it's such a major part of my identity, um, that I would, I would love to hear, um, just, you know, what exactly does it working and living in this space mean to you? I feel the same. I feel the same as you do. Um, I've never heard, heard it worded exactly like that. I, I probably could not do it so eloquently, but <laughs> <laughs> being a conservation advocate to me, does it means that it doesn't end when the job ends. I think exactly what you just said, it's my identity. Uh, I am I'm not a celebrity by any means whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> to I, I me, we are. Not, yeah, not you're, you're, a, you're an ocean celeb. <laughs> Uh, I I hear a lot this this term and I think it must have come from Sesame Street or something Uh, you know here's Lindsay she's your friendly neighborhood marine biologist and (laughs) basically how people introduce me now is you know oh do you want to talk about whales Lindsay it's Christmas day can we sit down and eat our dinner I know but this really cool whale thing just happened that I wanted to talk to everybody about you know it doesn't end when the job ends it is walking the walk while talking the talk. You know, you you don't become something or say that you do something and then it just, you know, the effort stops there. You have to get educated, read articles and the newspaper and seek out others who represent responsible advocacy um, for conservation. You got to go to conferences, lectures, lunch and learns at the aquarium. You go to the aquarium, you borrow books from the library, you attend webinars. They're free. There's so much out there. There is so much out there. Yeah, tons. I mean, you have to wait through some of it. You know, we are certainly guilty of overstimulating. But once you've done some of that, that's a chronic effort. 
and then you also have to educate others. You keep the story going. You spend time in nature. You commit chronic acts that help to make a difference, whether it's to pick up a few pieces of trash while you're at the beach or disposing of your waste properly at home or, or donating a few bucks at Christmas to a responsible conservation group. It's the little things. They add up over time. They make a real difference. And being a model to others while you do it makes a tenfold difference. Yeah, like and to be that model on the whale watch boat or in the classroom to kind of to to show that it can be done and to show that you can have fun while doing it. But have you ever noticed that when one person or a group or a government they does something they do something you know it's brand new it's revolutionary it seems strange but then as one more and one more and one more begin to follow the idea begins to pick up speed and more people adopt the idea. Like a trend, we we once thought, and I remember speaking to eighth grade class about this last year. Uh, we, we were having a discussion about tectonic plates and, and the idea of believing them or not believing them. We once thought that tectonic plates were this nutty idea that, that you know that they moved around the planet when when Wagner first introduced the thought, and and people shamed him. They shamed him publicly for for his speculation on this theory. And now we know that tectonic plate movement dictates weather events and powers the rock cycle and explains so much of what we previously did not know. It's amazing. And I also think that gets to, um, you know, working in this space, I think, requires you to have a set of very thick skin and optimistic mindset um, because you will get pushback, especially Uh in our political, um, the times we are in right now with um, the federal administration, not necessarily, um, and I'm, I feel like I'm putting it nicely because I don't want to completely um, go off the rails on a tangent, but the, the federal administration not being the most supportive and, you know, a lot of them not even really believing that the climate is changing um, and believing in the importance of caring for um, our planet and our environment. And so if you're in this space, I feel like every day you're going to face that backlash and um, deniers. But if you keep pushing forward and know what your truth is and continue speaking that truth, um, it's amazing to see what can happen over time. It is definitely a long game. Um, It's not an easy long game. But it can be so rewarding when you see areas that you make progress. It's definitely a long game. It, um, I think working in the conservation world forever and ever in history, even including now, it is an exercise in standing up for what you believe in. Just today I read that the European Union uh, voted... I think it was like 570 or 71 to 53 in favor of a complete ban on single-use plastics. I did see that. Yeah, I think it's it's on the starting in the headlines. I think just this morning. That's an overwhelming vote for change Mm -hmm. in the face of of ease and cheapness and and productivity and different. you know, businesses wanting to do single-use stuff, they're showing that they're committed to help the world address its plastic waste problem, coming to terms that that plastic waste has a a major effect on pollutions in the world's oceans. You know, do you think that they just suddenly came up with this? Of course not. And they had backlash, but 
they listened to their constituents. They heard that others are interested in that change, of course. They're repeating an act that has already been instilled in a growing list of other governments who are a model for this conservation advocacy that there have been pushback on. And, you know, even in coastal Massachusetts, we're seeing a similar sweep uh, in plastic bag bans in individual towns and the elimination of plastic straws in restaurants. Uh, you know, one started it and then the other said, oh, this is very expensive. We can't do this. But then more and more people kept asking it. And I'm sure it's embarrassing to sit in a restaurant and say, hey, why don't you have the, your, why don't you eliminate these straws and go to to something else, to a more biodegradable version or just getting rid yeah, of Yeah, or look, your competitor is doing it. So now um, they have a leg up on you. Right. And that that is the trend that we... We are a little bit of a lemming in the fact that we, we need to uh, follow what those trends are. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one by one by one, um, even with backlash, you can, you can fight for that positive change. Yeah, and I think what I've been, something, a positive note that I've noticed over um, the past couple years and, you know, sp- especially with the recent election, so you're starting to see things um, in progress being made on a local level, you know, Uh towns, municipalities, cities, regions, states saying, Hey, we're going to make this shift to hundred percent renewable energy. We're getting rid of single use plastics. You know, we're taking steps, um, to move away from our reliance on oil and gas. We're developing wind energy. Um, and the list goes on and on and on. So, so I know that, you know, we, we can sit here and, you know, kind of gripe all day about areas where we're frustrated, but I, I think it's so important to look at areas where we're making progress. Right, right. I mean, there are a lot of challenges of funding, honing the most important messages. You know, there's there's so many challenges to wade through in this era of technology and instantaneous gratification of overstimulation and smartphones and conflicting views and incorrect information, the fake news, you know, being fed to our oh ears and our eyes and our fingertips all the time. Crafting that clear attention grabbing message to the target audience is key and it's hard, mm-hmm. but the it success takes work. of that is, is that more people are listening. Yes. Yeah, and you have access to way more people now than we've ever had access to before. Um, And I know you've heard me. I could do a whole podcast, and maybe I should, about the the benefits and value of using social media um, from your brand's perspective. But that's that's an area where you really can use social media to be a fantastic tool and an ally to your brand um, and your advocacy goals. Um, um, So I know that, you know, the two of us and then a lot of the people that we partner with and collaborate with um, are, you know, we, we just mentioned it, that that drive to conserve and to protect the environment is a part of us. I mean, it's so central to who we are. But what are some things that people can do that maybe they... Because, you know, I feel like most people, yes, if you were to ask them, do you want a healthy environment? Do you want to take care of the planet? I feel like most people are going to say yes, um, but maybe they don't have that constant little inner voice screaming at them to do everything that they can with the time that they have on this earth to take care of it. Um, What are some things that you recommend that people can do to be better stewards of the planet? Well, I think that that 
depends a lot on what their lifestyle is and where they live and, you know, where they're coming from. Um, and, and so everybody's, what I mean by that is that everybody's little list of things to start up is going to be different. But the first thing that anybody should do is to not turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to it. You know, they need to notice, to listen, to be part of the conversation, whether that means being a part of a, a Facebook group that is involved in ocean cleanup on, you know, on social media, that might be a good thing. To uh, start attending town meetings when it comes to uh, coastal zone management, um, to just talking to their friend at work about about uh, you know some of those issues you know around the water cooler, that's a really important start because you can't become a better steward, you can't make any act whatsoever if you don't have any idea what's going on. In the end, we all are going to need to modify our behavior and our consumption on this planet as much as possible. Even little changes, like drinking from a reusable water bottle or um, you know, recycling more effectively. We need to modify our behaviors in this world before those behaviors modify us. Spoken, spoken like a true resources. Yeah. We are. It's gonna say spoken like a true educator. It was very well put. Um, so you also spend a lot of time out on the water, and I know we've heard a little bit about that. Um, but I'm interested in hearing about some of your most memorable moments out there, um, and then why are those moments like? Why do you think those moments have stuck with you? I have millions. Honestly, Jenna, I have millions of moments that stand out. Which one popped into your mind first? This summer, uh, on sea salt charters, I was on a little boat with a family of four kids and two adults, and none of them had ever seen a whale before. And a well-known individual who is the granddaughter of the grand dame of our humpback whales here in Stowag, and one of some of our most studied whales, this one particular family, a whale named Etch-a-Sketch, <laughs> popped up. Next to the boat, Etch a Sketch. It's such a great name, it's right? It's an amazing it's a name. name from the eighties. And and this this whale's tail has like a little almost like a little happy face emoticon in the upper right hand corner of the fluke. And she's got all these little scribbles and scratches, like chicken scratches, like a little kid would be playing on an etch a sketch all over her tail and and that's why she was named that. And she's so well-known because she's very active near boats. And, of course, uh, you know, we were being responsible whale watches, watchers. Our, our engines were off, and we weren't drifting down in the whale. We were just sitting passively, actually looking afar to some, where some other whales were. Did not have any idea that she had swam closer to us. Well, there must have been some bait ball of, of fish there, and she came up right next to the boat bubbling up into this huge, churning, green, frothy circle. And the kids were sitting on the bow, leaning over, and they could smell her breath. And she was, uh, the spray of, of the, her blow went right into their faces. I was like, oh, kids, you better wash your faces. <laughs> and I, I happened to have my cell phone up, which I'm, I feel shameful that it wasn't my camera or my video camera, my GoPro. But I had my cell phone up because um, the family had asked me to take a picture of the kids on the bow and it, I put my um, my data taking materials down my GPS my clipboard everything I put it down because I was 
I was paying attention to taking a picture of them and not so much the whales because the whales were further away. That whale popped up and I got it all on the video. The kids looking over the side of the, of the boat and getting sprayed in the face and saying, whoa. <laughs> what a truly was, special moment. I also, you did so such a amazing. The parents were stunned. Yeah. The you poor did. captain, he's like, well, good thing the boat wasn't moving. <laughs> came up and we didn't know. Oh, and man. the kids, I, I said, one of the things to them, I said, and how does that make you feel? And they said, this was so amazing. And the oldest in the group of four kids, she was 14 years old. She loved the ocean. They were from the middle of the country. They'd never been even on a boat before. It was a special vacation for them. She said, this is the happiest moment of my life. Yeah. And I was going to say those moments, that moment is going to stick with them for the rest of their lives. Forever. And, And these whales, they use this area as a feeding ground in the summer it's a little bit more normal to me because I see it. I'm a part of it, but with a wingspan greater than some Learjets, they're wild white pectoral flippers twirling in the water as they approach us with their big bumpy faces. That can be emotional. And sometimes it's even life changing. So a memorable moment like that, if we can bring somebody to that and create that for them, that creates a memory and a connection an emotional response that will forever make those children, that family, uh, realize that there's something out there that's worth protecting. And yeah. that, that is what that will, what is what will modify that behavior in the end, that memory, that connection that they made. That was so a, those those are probably the best moments yeah, I can think of. That was a beautiful story, and I'm really happy you shared it with us. And I think that it's exactly those moments in connecting people with the natural world even if it's one family, one child at a time, because they're going to go back to their, their home and talk about this experience with everybody around them, hopefully inspire their networks and their groups to go have similar experiences, or at least realize how incredible and breathtaking and awe-inspiring and important these creatures in the ocean ecosystem are. Um, and, try a little bit harder because they now have that connection, um, with that space and that place, um, to, to change their behavior for the better. Uh Um, so also I think tagging on to the fact that you are so frequently out on the water, you are also on the front lines of seeing the climate and conditions change. Um, and I'm curious to know, how have you seen our marine environment changing um, over the years that you've been going out and doing whale watches and research? Well, in the grand scheme of things, I'm I'm still relatively new to it because I'm only in my 30s and I I can I've been whale watching as long as I can remember since I was five years old well, professionally since I was in college and and even in that short amount of time it should speak to the fact that there has been so much change in that short amount of time uh, to know that our situation is is to the point of dire. In regards to these waters where I live, the Gulf of Maine, uh, Cape Cod Bay, these areas, they're warming much faster than most other bodies of water, so much so that it's at, a, it's at an unprecedented speed uh, in temperature. And this is just even a small change, enough to 
shift whole populations. The economy here is largely fishing-based, and we we go for uh, the American lobster, you know, the lobster that you think of <laughs> that you have on your New England plate for uh, a New England oil, and uh, they are shifting their environment to go where cooler weather is. They're going more northerly. Uh, with marine mammals in particular, many marine biologists, including myself, are noticing that the populations of whale species are also shifting their ranges. Uh, most scientists think that this type of change is caused by multiple factors, not just natural ones, but also man-made ones. I think climate change is, is a huge factor. Uh, in New England waters, I've noticed it, especially with the critically endangered North Atlantic right whale. And right now, the current population estimate is, is it sits at 411. And that's not to say that there's exactly 411 animals left, but it's somewhere around the population estimate with some, uh, some range, perhaps on either side. It could be a little less than that or a little more. But the change in where these whales hang out uh, is oftentimes a response to a change in where their best food sources are, which will affect their foraging behaviors. Um, it may also be in response to, to noise because there is so much boat traffic and marine transport and, you know, construction uh, with, uh, you know, everything under the sun from, from wind farms to, um, to oil rigs and, and things of that nature, um, seismic surveys and stuff like that, that that may be affecting where they go and how much time they want to spend there. So I and just want to pause real quick just to, for some clarification. I don't, I just don't want to assume that everybody knows what seismic is. Um, so just to give the listeners a little bit of background, um, you know, whales are, very acoustically driven creatures along with many other mer species of marine life um, that rely on, um, you know, their sense of either hearing or sonar or um, other ways acoustically to, to find food and mates and their way around. Um, and our ocean is a very noisy place. Um, very noisy. Yes. Very. Yes. So from the engines of shipping boats to development when we're developing offshore wind farms or offshore oil rigs um, to seismic, which not to get too in the weeds of it, essentially is a series of very, very loud blasts um, that people use to identify where um, certain underwater resources are, namely oil and gas deposits. Um, and Lindsay might be able to speak a little bit more to this, but from my understanding, those blasts can be so loud that the effect that they have on marine mammals can completely burst their eardrums. It can kill them. It can disorient them. And it's like standing next to a jet engine right next to you um, for you know days on end or however long they're doing the survey for. Right. Right, yeah, and they, they can sometimes be months long. Most of the time those pulses are about um, 10 seconds apart, but they're chronic, and the generally the, the decibel range at which they, the sound falls is within that hearing range of what whales use to communicate, to forage, to navigate, 
all those things. And, and then not just the whales, I mean, other organisms too. And there's a whole science behind that that is being developed and discussed um, and also mitigated, uh, you know, the there's a whole uh, type of work that is being done now uh, called marine mammal observation or protected species observation, which is solely for marine biologist individuals to spend time on boats like seismic survey vessels or construction vessels at sea just to monitor um, individual species that are protected and make sure that they're not in the, the, the hot zone of where um, that work is being done. And if they are present, then work is often shut down. Um, there's a whole side side to that that I don't want to get, as you said, too in the weeds over it, but it, noise is most certainly a concern, and it's not just a concern for whales, it's a concern for, for uh, many other species as well. Um, it's, it's a noisy place, and it's not just because of the biological sound, it's because of the human-caused or the anthropogenic sound as well. Um, and these are, these are some of the bigger concerns that has seen our environment changing. There's more of a... We make a lot of sound. We make a lot of stuff. We put a lot of stuff in the water, sometimes by accident, often on purpose. And it really shifts both the, the occurrence, um, both spatial and temporal occurrence of many different types of animals. And it, it, occur, it changes where their feeding can be and it changes their behavior. And that can have a resounding cascading effect. And it certainly is. Uh, and so part of the work as a marine biologist is to kind of monitor that and speak to those issues and to let people know what those issues are so that we can try to mitigate or, or control or stop uh, some of those challenging problems that we face in conserving not just the wildlife and the ecosystem, but also the economy and the safety of humans as well. Absolutely. And I know that I sort of sidetracked us there and you were talking a little bit about how you've seen um, the ocean ecosystem changing um, throughout your career. And then you were specifically touching on the right whales. And I know that that is a huge um, issue and concern of many different people, not just folks in the conservation world. So um, I'd love to circle back around to that and and hear a bit more about um, what we're seeing out there. Well, with the right whales in particular, um, they're well known in this region uh, along Cape Cod. And some people from afar may have heard of Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. Those are two um, iconic um, vacation destinations uh, for presidents and and the regulars alike <laughs> who uh, really enjoy uh, these regions um, to visit. But they, this was once a whaling capital. Um, and so, and of course now we've, we've traded our, our spear guns for cameras and we use our uh, natural resources, at least here in the continental U.S., a little differently than, um, than some other places. But, but right whales were hunted to the very brink of extinction. And it wasn't until there was a moratorium on, on hunting whales here and the Marine Mammal Protection Act instilled as law in 1972 that we started into, to working to save them. Um, their numbers hung in the mere 100 range. 
and they've made a very, very, very slow increase, um, which is affected now primarily by fixed fishing entanglements, uh, like crab pot fishing and, and um, lobster pot gear, and, uh, and by vessel strikes, which uh, is an issue because we do have a lot of boat traffic and, and they hit whales. <laughs> um, it's a reality. Nobody means to hurt these animals, but just by our mere presence, they're there. Um, and so that is that is a big change for them that we have to think about and mitigate for. Between that and, and climate change with warmer waters, they definitely have a long list of threats that they face. And we have a long list of behavioral modifications that we have to consider in order to reduce our effect on them. Um, the right whale has almost completely stopped feeding in some areas. For example, in coastal Maine, where you went to school, like uh, Grand Manan Island, they have a favorite food source there, a cold water species of copepod. It's a little little plankton, like from SpongeBob SquarePants, little plankton. <laughs> <laughs> Some people might not be able to envision that because they're microscopic practically, but it's called Calanus finmarchicus. And in that area, they're no longer as plentiful as they once were. They require a very specific set of environmental factors in salinity and, and temperature to be plentiful. And because the North Atlantic right whale eats an enormous amount of these small creatures, it's important to them to go to places where they're very dense. Um, and so they're shifting where they're spending time. About half of the population of the North Atlantic right whale has been seen at one time right inside Cape Cod Bay in the middle of winter. And so for us locally, they are a real um, keystone species for understanding general ocean health in the area and other changes that might be happening. And so this region has worked really, really hard in trying to uh, develop a recovery plan for these individuals. Of course, with uh, certain laws in effect that are federal, such as the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Endangered Species Act, which the right whale falls under due to its sadly poor numbers, um, a recovery plan uh, But I think the locals take it even multiple steps further because they're right here next to these animals when they end up here along their migratory route. And we can see them and we can see... um, what what's happening with them individually? They're coming. A lot of them are coming up thinner. A lot of them are not producing calves. In fact, in last in the last year, uh, we did not see a single new right whale calf born here, and that that is definitely indicative of a species on the very brink of extinction. Um, and so, you know, we have all of these, this huge list of things that we have to worry about. And you feel like you can only attack one at a time and maybe all of them are impossible. The message seems to be this doom and gloom of we can't do anything about it. You know, it's too late. Why bother? Uh, but people are starting to, to, to talk more about it. And, you know, the answer really lies in our behavior, we can reverse some of this damage that's been caused, not only with the right whale, but with everything else. And if we can overall um, start to have some of those small behavioral changes and talk about it more, those responsible behaviors and the way that we consume energy, the way that we grow food, all of those different things, we have a real chance at reducing some of those negative impacts. 
and yeah, absolutely. The, the right whale is just a, and the, they're just an individual that can special, that. Yeah, and especially pairing them with the federal protections like the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Endangered mm-hmm. Species Act. If you pair those laws with on the ground behavior, like you're noting with local communities that are seeing these changes happening off of their shores and these reductions in population size and even the actual physical size of the right whales, um, you can see successes. I mean, that is the entire purpose of the Marine Mammal Protection Act and Endangered Species Act. And we have seen, and even when you look at the Magnuson-Stevens Act, if you pair those with, with, the proper action, you will see the populations recover. I mean, the environment and species and the entire ecosystem wants to be healthy, wants to thrive, and it will if we just let it. Uh-huh. Um, also, I while you were talking, I was thinking about a, kind of a morbid fact. I was, it's not a fun fact, but um, the name right whale and correct me if I'm wrong, Lindsay, is because back in the days where whaling was so central to our heritage off the coast of New England, um, the right whale got its name because it would float and was the right whale for whaling because it was easy for people to harvest. Is that is that right? Or did right. I just... The <laughs> whale to, to, to hunt. Yeah. Uh, there's a long-standing joke about, you know, well, what do we have to think about protecting more, the right whales or the left whales? Well, <laughs> <laughs> all whales. <laughs> all whales would be helpful to protect. I mean, everything down to, down to their poop. Their excrement is very important to the ecosystem because it it turns over nutrients for for later use for other organisms. It fertilizes the water. We need them. But uh, the right whales were a target, an easy target, because they're they're enormous. They, they I don't know if you've ever seen one in its entirety, but anybody who's listening, if you just Google right whale, they come up looking like this tubby, barrel-chested. Uh, crusty-looking alien <laughs> with uh, a smooth black tail and and strange markings and this little teeny tiny eye, which actually is more like the size of a grapefruit. But when you look at an animal that's tens of feet long, it's it, you know it's minimized. And this sort of like upside-down smile that sort of reminds you of of a flamingo beak. And they are such a strange, uh, not very cute looking species, but one interesting uh, biological fact about them is that they're they're so encased by blubber when they're healthy, they are able to gain so much weight with each season before they have to make a long journey or give birth to a calf, which I'm sure is no small feat to give something, give birth to something the size of a whale. Um, you know, they need a lot of body fat. That's their, that's their source of fuel. That's their gas tank. Uh, they spend long amounts of time not eating. That's why they have a migration route that brings them from their breeding ground to their feeding ground. And they, they, so they eat as much as they can and gain as much weight as they can. And then then many months, they are unable to get any food. So they have to work off of their reserves. And when they're at the height of that, they can be 50 tons. You know, do the math, that's 100,000 pounds. They've got to eat a lot of food every single day in order to do this and that translates their fuel translates as blubber and that blubber is a different density than water and it floats 
So compared to other whales, which may also be easy catches in terms of technology now, at the time when it was just harpoons and boats and and just manpower and not much else, um, going for the right whale was the right thing to do because as soon as you speared one and as soon as it died, it would float to the surface where it would be cut up or flensed and the blubber would be processed uh, right on the boat. And um, they could uh, pair that down to oil, which would be used to light up the lanterns of the world before electricity. And so, yeah, the right whale is unfortunately the wrong thing for them. They have this <laughs> great evolutionary ability to to store their energy in a fuel tank on their body. And that, in turn, became fuel for us uh, until we had to switch modes so it is a sad yes. so control, that sure. listeners is Jenna and Lindsay's depressingly fun fact of the day sorry about that everybody <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's an important thing to know about I mean I think whatever you're learning about um one species or another, if you're trying to, to figure out more about whatever scientific uh, background that you that you need to hear about, it's important to get the history behind why things became what they were, you know, what they are, because uh, you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you came from. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so as we start to wrap up, I ask this of every guest on my show because you guys have so much insight to share, and I think it's so valuable for people to hear. Um, what advice do you have for people that are looking to enter this field? Um, that could either, well, yeah. So what advice do you have for people that are looking to enter the field? And then what advice do you have for people that might be like longstanding salty veterans in this field? <laughs> salty, so salty. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy over time to become cynical, but, um, you know, <laughs> well, you know, stick with it. Whether you're at the start of your career or late in it, I guess I'm sort of at the the early middle. I've known since I was really, really little that I wanted to be a marine biologist. I can even pinpoint it down to the exact moment, Jenna, if I might be able to say. I would love for you to share that moment because we, we have actually talked about this on previous shows. Um, I feel like some people have that exact moment that they can flash back to, which I have, and a couple of other people I've spoke with have, and then others, it, it's not so clear. But for people that do have those experiences, I really enjoy hearing, you know, what was that moment that sparked this watery fire inside of you? Well, although the journey has been fuzzy and not exactly linear. <laughs> the very start was I was reading a book at home with my mom after we had a little beach visit and I was collecting shells and I found a perfect sand dollar that day and I brought it home. And my mom uh, was also an educator. She did early childhood education. She was a director of a really neat little school called Kidsport Learning Center. And she had a book that she wanted me to read because I so enjoyed collecting the shells. It was called A House for Hermit Crab by Eric Carle. And it was the story of a little hermit crab who was trying to figure out uh, what, what would be the perfect size home that would fit him. And he tried uh, sticking his body in all these little crevices in the ocean and he tried to find you know, the right shell that would fit. And I remember reading this book, A House for Hermit Crab, and thinking, I would really like to learn more about what this animal is doing and how I can spend time with them. 
you know, I was five. And my mom said, well, do you know what a marine biologist is? And I said, not really, but I think I'd like to be one. <laughs> and there you have it. You know what? It started when I was five too. Um, I, so my father was in the military and we lived in Hawaii for a number of years. And, um, my first job ever that I wanted to have was being a, a dolphin trainer. Um, and even though, you know, I have some questionable feelings about keeping marine mammals in captivity now, I mean, they're pretty firm. They're not questionable. Um, Back then, I think it just got to the the interest in that drive to um, be curious about our surroundings and the marine world and help protect them. That was like my five-year-old version of, <laughs> of trying to express that I was interested in ocean conservation. Yeah, it is so fascinating, isn't <laughs> it? And there's still so much that we don't know. But... If you care about the environment, no matter what angle it's from, whether it's the whales or the sand dollars or the sand between your toes or the physics of the splashes of the water or whatever it is, my advice to anyone, whether they're a veteran or just entering the field, is that you know you, you can still call yourself a scientist even if you're not a hard scientist. If you're talking about it, if you learn about it, you can be as, as involved as you want to be because your passion and your interests are what drive you to that success and self-fulfillment. There's never a straight path, I don't feel. I I don't know anyone that was like, I want to be a blankety-blank, and they just woke up one day and they were that. (laughs) They're just not. Um, But when you can be excited about it, then you can inspire others to be excited about it, and it sort of fulfills the fact that you are what you are. And that's kind of the greatest success of all, because then you become this amazing representative of, of ocean awareness, no matter what the angle is from. And, you know, they're a lot more irregular unsung heroes now uh, than there ever were. And I'd, I'd love to just take one more moment to mention a couple of them. Absolutely. Um, most people are asked, you know, well, who are your ocean heroes when they're involved in this work? Who are your inspirations? And I'm sure you yourself, Jenna, will probably come back with a stock answer of, you know, Jacques Cousteau and Sylvia Earle and all those iconic singular groundbreaking heroes of ocean awareness. But now they're starting to be more of these people that are showing themselves a better way to tell the story. And they're not like the norm for an ocean advocate or a scientist. Um, People like uh, wildlife photographers like Flip Nicklin and Nick Hawkins, who have shown such interest in telling the story that they're now going on some of the scientific expeditions with with great um, um, scientific groups like um, the Anderson Cabot Center for uh, for the oceans of New England Aquarium. I also feel really inspired by young people that are making waves like never before. Like the Balloons Blow sisters. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of them. I have. Balloons Blow, Don't Let Them Go from Florida. And they, they do beach cleanups every week and they just take pictures with a big thumbs down that say, can you believe this is happening? And just the image of that, it's incredible. Um, there are students who are leading these big waves. The, uh, the, the students of... Elgin High School in Illinois are one that stand out to me. They began as a senior project in, back in 2013-14, the National Biodiversity Teaching Webinars. Um, and I connected with them on Twitter, of all things. And they asked me to speak at their first event. 
and this national biodiversity teach-in, which is a bunch of free webinars that are given uh, by experts in the field and, and advocates of, of environmental awareness and science, has grown to become international. And these webinars are being given on an annual basis now as far away as India to hundreds and hundreds and thousands even of students all over the world that are getting a message that they wouldn't have before if not for a few people sparking interest in caring for the environment. So if you want to enter the field, there's millions of ways to do it. Everybody's path is going to be different. And as long as you stick to it, there's really, there's really always going to be something to do, I think. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm so happy that you mentioned people that inspire you and refresh you and give you a little bit more energy to complete, you, you know, the work that you're doing and continue to grow and learn. Um, because there are so many of them out there. I mean, if you're on social media, you can find all of these people. Even if you just go to like the hashtag ocean um, and start exploring, um, there are some unbelievably talented people that have taken to social media to either pair art or um, music or um, even just their drive to push forward STEM programs and mm -hmm. help youth get involved and have a stronger voice. Um, always seeking people that you admire um, and using them as a source of inspiration, I think is really powerful. Um, and I'm very fortunate in my day job to be surrounded by hundreds of ocean advocates through the Healthy Oceans Coalition, um, that many of them, it is a very thankless job, what they're doing, um, but it is so important and they're all so dedicated. And I don't know if maybe this is my way of expressing um, how I want all of you to have your 15 minutes or however long this podcast is going to be an hour or so of, of fame, because I want you guys to be able to share that story. I think you're all so fascinating and you, each and every one of you, especially you, Lindsay, you inspire me so much each and every day to continue pushing myself forward and pushing our work forward. And I think the most beautiful thing about it is it's such a, a tight community and supportive community. Very supportive. Um, and when Very I say supportive. it's a tight community, I don't mean that there's not space for people to enter it. I mean that people genuinely tend to care about each other and each other's work and figuring out ways that we can help move um, our organizations toward that common goal of a healthy ocean ecosystem and uh, policies that are going to help protect our ocean coasts and Great Lakes. Um, so finding inspiration in your life through even, you know, it doesn't always have to be through a celebrity. It can be through the person that you work with every single day. Right. And it's definitely a collaborative effort, a joint effort for sure. There's nobody that needs to feel like they can, they have to take on the world, that there's resources and, and ways to connect that makes the effort, the common mission stronger and I know that sounds almost religious in nature <laughs> um, but it's true <laughs> the ocean is a religion we need it we need it to breathe we need it to eat we need it to recreate we need it for transport all the things and it is most certainly a collaborative effort that the you know the virtual doors I guess are always open <laughs> to yes. being able to invite people to be a part of that because 100%. it's so important it is so important so um, my last question for you, Lindsay, is 
Um, how can people get involved with your work? I know that you have so many different things that you do. Um, my mind originally went to if people want to join you for a whale watch in the summer, um, but I'm not sure if there are opportunities for people to engage with your research or if they have questions with you, if you're comfortable sharing um, some way for them to contact you. And if you're not, then people can certainly reach out to me and I can put you guys in touch. Absolutely. I love to talk to anybody all the time. As you can see, I have no problem opening my mouth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I really love to, to chat about the ocean. I think it's a great way to start, you know, if you are ever in the Cape Cod or Plymouth area, get on a boat. Um, all of the whale watching organizations here, all the way from uh, the North Shore, um, Captain Bills and Cape, uh, Cape Ann whale watching are fantastic. And New England Aquarium has the Boston Harbor cruises um, on the Cape. There's Hyannis Whale Watcher out of Barnstable. I work specifically for Captain John in Plymouth, which is a, a cornerstone of, of the landscape there, and uh, Sea Salt Charters in Provincetown, which is a, a much smaller but really a fantastic boat who has a long legacy uh, with whales. And people are invited always to either reach out on social media to check in with those groups and, and see what they're about or what their, what their reports are for their most recent whale watches or just uh, ways to get connected to help out if they want to learn more or do about whales. Um, they can reach out to other local organizations. One of the best I've ever known or heard of is the Center of Coastal Studies in Provincetown. That little world's end place, just at the very tip of Cape Cod, there's amazing science happening there in all sorts of manners. Um, and so, and that's very easy to Google, the Center for Coastal Studies, um, CCS. If they'd like to talk to me personally, they're welcome to check out my Twitter, which is at OceanDevotion84. And I'd be happy to answer any questions or connect people if they're interested in, in um, doing a little bit of volunteer work for any of the organizations that I, that I work with or if I can lead them in the right direction to a group that might be able to help them. Um, I'd be happy to be a part of that. An but added a conversation. So please, please yes. do. Um, and I was going to say an added, an added bonus of following Lindsay on social media is that you get pictures of whales and whale watches, which is really <laughs> exciting. Um, so I highly recommend giving her a follow on Twitter. Well, thanks for that. Some, <laughs> I mean, they're, the whales are excellent models. Yeah. They really are. Yes. They, uh, they make it easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lindsay, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It has been so wonderful hearing your story. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to share that with me and our listeners. I know that I personally benefit from every single interaction with that I have with you. And I, I hope the listeners do too. Um, you are just a wealth of knowledge and you are so open and vulnerable with sharing it. Um, and I really admire that about you. So thank you a hundred times over. I, I, I seriously can't thank you enough. Thank you. That's very nice of you to say. It's great to be a part of, of a bigger network that, um, is actively involved as can be and sort of drives that, that passion. It's really great to be able to share. 
And I um, also thank you, the listeners, for tuning in. Um, if you would like to hear more podcasts, either this one or podcasts like this, you can find us at the American Shoreline Podcast Network, wherever you listen to podcasts. And we are also on Coastal News Today, where you can find the podcast and um, a plethora of other news about our ocean and coast. So please go on, check that out. Um, and if you like our social media pages, which is the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today, um, that is the best place for you to interact with us because we are still new and we are growing and expanding. Um, so if you would like to start a conversation with us about any of the content on any of the shows that are um, housed within the podcast network, um, social media will be your best bet to um, have a conversation. 